Hey, it's Emily. And it's Kayla. And you're listening to Two Jane Does. This podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever went to your fridge, opened the door, and then completely forget why you even went there in the first place? I'm sure the last thing you'd expect to see is two heads in your produce drawer. But let's jump in for today's case. We're going to discuss the gruesome murders of Fred and Edwina Rogers, how they ended up there, who the possible suspect is, and the conspiracies that go along with this case. It's titled, The Icebox Murders. And for those of you who don't know, the icebox is a refrigerator. So this case takes us back to 1965 in Houston, Texas, to the Montrose neighborhood at 1815 Driscoll Street. In this home lived Fred and Edwina Rogers and their son Charles. Fred was an 81-year-old retired real estate salesman. Edwina was a 79-year-old sales representative. And Charles was a 43-year-old U.S. Navy pilot and World War II veteran who had worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence with a bachelor's degree in nuclear physics. After the war, Charles worked as a seismologist with the Shell Company. He worked for the Shell Company for nine years before quitting without explanation and moving into the home with his mom and dad, Fred and Edwina. So he's a rather smart person, I would say. Right. Because I tell you what, I can't do no nuclear physics myself. Nope. I took one physics class in college. Major regrets. It's too much math. And I don't do math. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) And a fun little fact which we will dive into a little bit later when we get to the conspiracy theories behind this case, is that it was said that Charles was involved with the Civil Air Patrol at some point in the 1950s, and this is where he met David Ferry, who was a man who was accused of being involved with the assassination plot against President John F. Kennedy. Ooh, that's a bit of spicy information Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And he also owned his own airplane at some point as well. So Charles actually owned the home where the family lived, but neighbors didn't know that Charles was living with his father and mother, Fred and Edwina, aside from a cousin, Marvin Martin. So tell me you have a first name, last name, without telling me you have a first name, last name. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. This was because Charles would leave to tend to unknown business before Fred and Edwina woke up, returning after they had went to bed. 
When Charles was home, he spent most of his time in his attic bedroom and avoided his parents. Their communication was limited to notes slid under his bedroom door, and the family maid even stated that it was possible that Edwina hadn't seen Charles face-to-face for roughly five years. It's not said what led to these unusual living arrangements. It's possible that Charles wanted to provide for his parents despite them either not getting along or wishing to not be disturbed by the outside world. And I mean, I mean, if he was in the war, he could have some kind of PTSD going on there, which would prompt him moving back in with his parents and kind of being secluded. But I couldn't imagine it's like just being weird. Edwin, being like Charles. I made a pot roast. It's down here in the kitchen, and it's just all well, right down on a note, and it slid under the door. I mean, you got to think like I don't know how big this house is. I have no idea. But when I was living with my parents, you know, our house wasn't like humongous or anything. It was just a little two-bedroom, one-bath house. But it was nearly impossible for me to be, you know, go to the bathroom, go outside without being seen. Even if I did try to get up before they did or go to bed before, you know, after they were to bed. There's, I would always see them at least once a day. Yeah, it's near impossible to be living with someone and never see them. Like, it's, that's weird. Just... And, I mean, another little side note, there was no information on what Charles spent his day doing. So when he was getting up early and coming back late, nobody knows, or at least it wasn't out there for public record, like, what he spent his days doing. So we have no idea. But, I mean, you have a cute little old couple, their son living with them. And their relationship is strained at best. Mm-hmm. And, what, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? Not to mention the fact that nobody knows that you are living with your parents. Exactly. None of the neighbors in the neighborhood even knew that they had a son living there until the events of June 23, 1965. Their cousin, Marvin Martin... Grew concerned when he was unable to reach Fred or Edwina by the phone in three days. And even more concerned when he stopped by and the house was locked up, the blinds were drawn closed, and he knocked on the door and no one answered. Marvin contacted the Houston police and asked them to complete a welfare check for Fred and Edwina. And when Captain Charles Bullock and his partner, Ellen Barta, arrived at the home around 9 p.m., they noticed flower pots had been stacked against the back door. Bullock and Barta had to force their way inside. The one and a half story home was disorderly, which Marvin said this was normal. They weren't the best housekeepers. But what was odd was that there was moldy food on the kitchen table and a rotting smell coming from the refrigerator. Let's backtrack for a second. Earlier we stated that he had a family maid. Mm-hmm. So... What happened to her? Did she just stop coming? Did he not let her come anymore? I don't know. That's something else that I didn't see. It just, they, Hmm. in the research that I did, it just said that the maid said that, you know, Edwina hadn't seen Charles face to face in probably five years, but then there was no other mention of her anywhere else that I looked. Very strange. Indeed. Hmm. So Barta began checking the home while Bullock stood in the kitchen, something nagging at him. 
Bullock later recalls that something just didn't feel right. There are contradictory accounts of what happened next, but some say that Bullock saw food stacked on top of the refrigerator rather than inside, prompting his curiosity to open the refrigerator, while others say that he was thirsty for a beer on a hot summer day and wanted to see if they had anything to drink. Which is weird. If you're out there doing a welfare checkup, you're not just like, let me see what you got in the fridge, friend. Yeah, you're on duty. Exactly. You're not supposed to be drinking. (laughs) Bullock himself actually says that he doesn't know why he looked in the refrigerator, but that for some reason he just opened it. And inside the refrigerator, Bullock made a quick inventory of what he saw, which appeared to be shelf after shelf of hog meat. And he assumed that Fred and Edwina had been to the butcher recently. With the house empty, Bullock thought it was a shame that all the good meat would be going to waste. Right. And going back to the beginning of the episode, when I said, have you ever just opened your fridge and not remembered why you're there? So Bullock started to close the refrigerator when something caught his attention. At the bottom of the refrigerator in the produce drawer was what appeared to be a human head. Bullock slammed the door shut in disbelief of what he thought he had just seen. When he opened the refrigerator door again, the head was still there looking up at him, but in fact there were two heads in the produce drawer, except the other was missing the eyes. So I don't know about you, but I don't go to my fridge hoping to see somebody else staring back at me. Nah, homie. Mm Mm-mm. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't even like going to the store and, you know, on the rare occasion that you can actually find, like, a whole, like, duck with, like, the head and everything. So, I don't even like that. No, I don't want that in my fridge. I don't want to see that. No. Somebody asked you, do you have any cabbage? Yeah, there's a couple heads in the refrigerator. Fred and Edwina's home was immediately declared a crime scene and a murder investigation ensued. What Bullock thought was hog meat in the refrigerator turned out to be, well, another kind of meat. It was the dismembered bodies of Fred and Edwina, drained of their blood and their entrails removed. It was determined that Edwina and Fred had been murdered three days before their dismembered bodies were discovered, making their date of death June 20th, 1965, which was Father's Day. Oof. Edwina had been beaten and then shot execution style, and Fred was beaten to death with a claw hammer, his eyes gouged out, and his genitals cut off. That's just rage. Like, somebody had a reason... I highly dislike these people and want to hurt them. Yeah. Because that's not normal. No. I mean, even if it was just like someone breaking into the house, why would you go through the trouble of gouging somebody's eyes out and cutting off their genitals? Oh, I mean, even taking it a step further than that, why would you kill them, drain their blood, dismember them, pack them like hog meat, and stick them in the refrigerator? That's a whole bunch of steps that indicate that this person knew these people and just wanted to punish them for something. And had a plan. Yeah, they had a plan and there's some anger there for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. It was also determined that Fred and Edwina were drained of their blood and dismembered and cut into fridge-sized pieces 
all in the bathroom. So, Fred and Edwina's organs were later found in a nearby sewer, meaning that the killer had chopped them up and flushed them down the toilet. Other parts of Fred and Edwina's bodies were never found, and the medical examiner stated that whoever had done this took their time and knew what they were doing. The medical examiner also stated that the dismembering was done fairly neatly. If you were going to murder somebody, I guess this is a pretty high form of praise. If the medical examiner's like, yep, yep, this is a, this is a pretty neat, uh, pretty neat job here. Did it well. But it also makes you think, like, for someone, I mean, let's just say, this clearly wasn't a very sloppy murder, so it probably mm-hmm. wasn't somebody's first time. So you would either have to think that they've had practice, or this person's possibly a butcher. Yeah. Like an actual meat butcher. Exactly. Not a people meat butcher, but yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a skill set that transfers. <laughs> <laughs> and then what I mean, why would you flush stuff down the toilet? I mean that's just That's unsanitary. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because at that point, they're really thinking about sanitary. They're elbow deep in these bodies, but they're like, meh. I mean, when you flush stuff down your toilet, it goes through the sewage pipes Mm -hmm. to a sewer plant where people Mm -hmm. are cleaning up your sewer water Mm -hmm. to make clean water. And all the stuff that doesn't break down, they separate away from the water so the sewer plant workers at one point in time are probably bound to find human remains at the sewer plant. I mean, so you're not really thinking about your, you know, no leaving traces. Well, there's a trace, you know? I mean, is it really that unsanitary to flush somebody's, like, chopped liver down the toilet when we're shitting in toilets? I mean, no. Okay. But <laughs> you're leaving yourself a trail. I mean, yeah. I mean, they could, they don't have any way of knowing, like, which pipes they came from or anything, but... I mean, I mean eventually a, you would have gotten caught regardless. Yeah, because if, if a liver or anything that looks human remain, like, comes down the pipes, they're, you know, it's going to obviously be flagged if they're doing their jobs. Like, hey, this, this is not normal. This isn't shit. This yeah. is a human part. <laughs> This is this is like an eyeball, or this is a small intestine. You know they're gonna they're gonna find it. Anyways, the home was then thoroughly cleaned, and little blood was found in the home, which is, I mean, that's crazy to me. Yeah, because I mean, you did all of the blood draining or whatever in the bathtub, but even like, I mean, like animal meat when you package it, there's still like blood in the packaging and you know if you go from your sink to a trash can it's gonna possibly drip yeah and i mean it makes me wonder if he shot you know if whoever shot edwina execution style you would think the blood splatter from that's gonna be everywhere everywhere oh i didn't even think oh what if the maid what if the maid was involved and she, like, came back through and cleaned things up? She was up. the cleanup crew. Ooh. That's a good theory. Theories. Mm-hmm. Basically a detective. Tests indicated that a large amount of blood had been cleaned from the bathroom floor and tub, which makes sense because that's where they determined that they were drained of their blood. 
Right. And what little blood that was found in the home led to Charles's bedroom. But Charles was nowhere to be found. Inside his room, there was clothing, a hot plate and kettle, dishes, and a collection of ham radios. Which, if you don't know what ham radios are, they're a lot like CB radios. So this little backstory to this, this was this kind of grew to be one of his hobbies was to have these radios so he could interact with other people and uh, kind of furs with a hobby. And maybe that's something that he grew to like from being in the military too. Maybe that's very possible. Yep. Yeah. But among these things, there was also a bloody keyhole saw, which was determined to be what was used to dismember. Fred and Edwina, which are his parents. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what a keyhole saw is, it's a lot like a reciprocating saw, except it just has a handle, and you have to manually do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then you have to think, like, whoever did this, going back to there wasn't any blood in the house, Mm-hmm. If you are using a keyhole saw manually, you are bound to get God knows how much blood or skin or hair or bone fragments all over you in the uh, process. I don't want to think about it. So how did they not find any trail of body filaments? Because it would be tiny <laughs> throughout the house. <laughs> For those of you listening... She just did, like, spirit fingers when she said (laughs) filaments. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, they saw, obviously, that there was blood in the bathroom that had been cleaned or attempted to have been cleaned. And the other bits of blood that they found led to his room, so... Could he be the one that done it? Mm, We don't don't know. know. So, an international manhunt was then launched to find Charles. However, he would never be seen again. Oh. Ten years later, Charles was actually declared dead in absentia, which means that he was declared dead despite gaining any direct proof of his death, meaning that no remains have been found and no one has come forward with any evidence to prove that he is actually dead or alive. This was so the estate could be probated. So they're just like, this dude's dead. We gotta get this this estate gone. Mm-hmm. Basically. Wow. Because, I mean, it was only Fred, Edwina, and Charles that lived there. And he owned the home. I was just gonna say, I, I would be pissed if I just go missing or something and I'm gone for ten years I'd be pissed if someone was just like, yeah, we need this house, so this person's dead. And I was still out there just rummaging around in the world. I'd be pissed. Like, that's my house, yo. See? I mean, that's one way to look at it. But at this point, everything is pointing to Charles either knowing about the murders or being directly connected with the murders. And then why would you care? Yeah, so if he disappears, it's probably for good reason. I highly doubt it's because he's a witness to something he shouldn't have seen. So he's probably not trying to be found. That's pretty much it 
on the actual case itself, but there are a few conspiracy theories that make you wonder what actually happened to Charles and what he was doing during the day, handling his business that nobody knew about. There was a 1992 book titled The Man on the Grassy Knoll, and it was written by John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers. And they were investigators for the National Intelligence Service Bureau, and they studied Fred and Edwina's murders after Charles' disappearance. Their theory is that Charles was a CIA agent until the mid-1980s, and that he was involved in the assassination of JFK along with a man named Chauncey Holt and Charles Harrelson. And Charles Harrelson is actually the father of the actor Woody Harrelson. thought I would just sprinkle that in there. <laughs> they further claim that Charles killed Fred and Edwina because they were listening to and keeping track of his CIA-related phone calls and that they heard and knew too much. After the murder, John and Philip claim that Charles then fled to Guatemala, where he died of old age. However, Publishers Weekly claims that while this theory is compelling, it's rather weak, stating that their sourcing is virtually non-existent. So, they're saying that there really isn't enough evidence to put behind this theory that they're throwing out there. And while it may be interesting or whatever it it's more than likely not true because there's just nothing backing it up i don't know how hard it was to become a cia agent in the 1960s mm -hmm. but i know like now you have to go through a pretty extensive like application process training and most of the time it's just that you're randomly selected and so, you know, with him being in the military and being a nuclear physicist and then having naval intelligence, I mean, he could have possibly been, like, a selectee of the CIA. But then again, like, why would a CIA person be living with his parents? Right. Now... And then they were just like, oh, let's just throw in the fact that he knew this person that was accused of John F. K.'s assassination and let's build a story off of it. Like, I mean, I believe that Publishers Weekly was like, yeah, this is weak. I would believe that because there's really not much. They're just throwing a bunch of information together and trying to make a story out of mm -hmm. it. Hollywood type stuff. In this quick little Google search, so individuals who want to become CIA agents through the Inspector General must be U.S. citizen, possess a bachelor's degree with a minimum GPA of 3.0, Possess at least three years of criminal investigative experience focused on complex matters. Have considerable knowledge of criminal and administrative investigative techniques. Be able to assemble and analyze large quantities of data. Be able to discern key issues and draw appropriate conclusions. Be able to work independently or part of a team be able to work under pressure, be able to interact with people of different cultures, backgrounds, and values, have strong negotiation skills, discretion, and diplomacy, have not used illegal drugs within the past 12 months, and although specific bachelor degree programs are not a requirement for achieving CIA agent investigative jobs, 
Many candidates in this field pursue bachelor degree programs in criminal justice, criminology, sociology, emergency management, homeland security, police science, criminal justice administration, and psychology. So it's pretty, it seems pretty strict if you're gonna, if you're looking to go down a career path because I mean just the three years of criminal investigative experience focused on complex matters you would have to have that you know you'd have to say I've graduated with this bachelor's degree and then you have to do the footwork in order to get that type of experience and you're not going to go from turning your tassel to landing a job where you are getting that investigative experience overnight. It's not like it's an entry-level job. But I mean, it's possible that he could have been a CIA agent, but in my research, it, it just said that he had a bachelor's degree in nuclear physics. Not saying that the CIA wouldn't be interested in that. Right. They could have been interested in somebody who had a degree in nuclear physics, but again, we don't know. Because this is just a conspiracy theory that someone put out there just to try and close this whole case up and wrap it up. Pretty much is what it sounds like. Like, these people were like, we want to put an end to this story and here's a story for you guys and hope the public believes it. Which I think that's what a lot of people do. You know, if if it if things are left open-ended, it leaves room for imagination. And I think we as humans don't like that. We don't like for things to be just left open. We need some kind of finality to a situation. Right, because I mean, you know, you're watching your favorite TV series, and then they just leave you with an open-ended ending, like... The Dex- Sopranos. Or Dexter. <laughs> and so you're left to your imagination of what's going to happen next, and then they just don't ever do anything, so you're mad at that TV series because they ended it that way. Yep. Yep. So, there was another book... And it was titled The Icebox Murder, and this was released as a fact-based fiction in 2003 by Hugh and Martha Gardner. And they dismissed any connection to the JFK assassination. However, they agree that Charles may have had CIA connections due to his previous work in the oil and gas industries, but rejected that he was an agent himself that had to kill his parents because they knew too much. The Gardeners believe a different story in which Charles was emotionally and physically abused by Fred as a child into his adulthood and that removing Fred's genitals may have confirmed that. I mean, that's a little bit more believable. Exactly, because like we said, cutting someone's genitals off is a very specific act. In most cases, you don't just see genitals cut off just because that was the thing to do. There's usually a, a more in-depth reason behind those type of actions. I could see that Fred physically and emotionally abusing Charles being a likely possibility just because of that one action. Right, and maybe that's why 
Charles would leave the house before they woke up and be back in the house by the time they were asleep as to not have to confront Fred again or have to deal with the trauma, relive his trauma. But also, I mean, if nobody else knew other than a select handful of people that Fred and Edwina was living there, it slims down the people that were possible suspects. I mean, you have mm-hmm. Charles, who was living there. You have the maid. Right. You have the cousin, Marvin. Mm-hmm. You have- I can kind of see where people are like, Charles didn't do it. He was CIA. Because he just disappears. Mm-hmm. But then again, there's just a select few people who knew that his parents lived there with him. And then it also makes me think... If Fred was the one that was perpetrating all this abuse on him as a child into adulthood, why did he kill Edwina? Well, it's because she let him do it. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe she she got caught in the crossfire because she never did anything to make it stop. Right. And that's... There's more anger and she was killed execution style, so it's kind of like, I'm going to do you like this because this is what you deserve. Mm Mm-hmm. But then, something else that the Gardeners put out there is that they also believe that prior to Fred and Edwina's murders, they were defrauding Charles by forging his signature on deeds for land that he owned and that they were taking loans out in his name and pocketing the money. And they labeled Fred and Edwina as devious con artists, claiming that Fred worked as a bookie and that he regularly engaged in gambling and fraud where he stole large amounts of money from Charles while he continued to abuse him. What better way to kind of be a bookie when you have a real estate agency that you're working for? Right, and then it also makes me think maybe Charles quit his job because it was no longer benefiting him to be earning money when Fred and Edwina were only going to take it from him. So then it was no fight. It was no longer an option for him to live on his own. So he had to move back in with his mom and dad. And maybe this is the whole big gambit of their abuse towards him. It's very is possible. Just isolate him to where he has no choice but to come back and stay with them. Which is pretty shitty. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if I'm 79 and I'm still a sound mind to like get my money's worth. And you never know. He could have been. (laughs) (laughs) Fred and Edwina could have been playing the like I'm an elderly person card. Mm -hmm. And like one second they'll be saying, oh, well, I don't remember this or I forgot that. And. But when really they do know, and then it was all an act to Ooh, try and get what they wanted. Like Tony Soprano's mom. You really need to let Tony Soprano go. I know, I need to, but I'm not going to let it go. Olivia was an awful mother, okay? So anyways, moving on. <laughs> PTSD. The Gardeners claim that Charles had been planning Fred and Edwina's murder for years, and that he used his connections through his ham or CB radio hobby to flee to Mexico where he he eventually ended up in 
Doris, where he was ultimately killed over a wage dispute with the miners there. That seems a little wishy-washy to me. It's kind of far-fetched. Right. Him fleeing to Mexico and ending up in Honduras, that's okay. But then him being killed over a wage dispute with miners, that's a little too specific to really say that that happened when no one knows what happened. Right, and he could have been using his connections through his radio to figure out how to kill his parents, ultimately. Right. But they say in this book that there are many unnamed characters which are supposed to represent various politicians and attorneys, and including an eyewitness that claims, air quote, claims that they saw Charles in Honduras after 1965. Again, not confirmed, just conspiracy theories. They had a pretty good thing going for them until they threw in the whole wage dispute. They could have just said he fled to Mexico and that's probably where he died of old age. Because I think they said if he was still alive today, he'd be over 100. So the likelihood of him still being alive, slim to none. Right. not Moses or anything. We don't, there's not very many people that live to see a hundred. I mean, hell, there's not a lot of people that live to see 80 anymore. No. So. And I mean, he would have been 53 when they, you know, stated that he was dead. Right. Just to get the property anyways. So old age is a little bit more believable than dying over a wage dispute. Right. Because I would like to imagine if My parents have been abusing me my whole life, financially exploiting me my whole life, and I decide, hey, I'm going to kill them. Number one, I'm not going to be able to do all that. I'm not going to be able to chop them up. Because number one, if I'm going to kill them, it's going to be like a heat of the moment. Bam, bam. You're both dead. I'm just going to leave you dead there. Sorry, Mom and Dad. I love you. I'll never hurt you. But I'm going to flee, and then I'm going to do nothing. I'm much less get into an argument with minors and get killed over that. No, if I kill somebody and I leave the country, I'm laying low, sipping margaritas at the beach or something. Because you don't want to draw attention to yourself. Exactly. But ultimately, we may never know the true story because there is no concrete evidence that points to Charles winding up in Central America, though he did own his own plane at one point. All we know is that Charles disappeared after the gruesome murder of his parents. This case remains officially unsolved, with Charles being the only suspect. Was he involved with the CIA? Was he an agent himself? Did Fred and Edwina know too much? Let us know what you think. The house on 1815 Driscoll Street remained empty and unsold until it was torn down in 1972. The lot? itself remained empty until 2000 when condominiums were built there and they are still there to this day that we know of. Ooh, it kind of makes you wonder if they would have like left the house up if you could have done like some sort of freaky haunted tour. That would have been cool. I would have turned it into a meat shop. (laughs) That's that's terrible. What would you have That's called good it? Good marketing. What would you have called it? I would have called it the family-owned butcher block. 
No, no, you should call it the Icebox ice box Meat Shop. There you go, Icebox Meat Shop. <laughs> Icebox Butcher Services. We keep the good stuff and flush the rest. Oh! <laughs> That's terrible. But yes, if you guys have any type of ideas as to what really happened here, just let us know. Yeah, let us know your conspiracy theories. This could be a fun game. Also, if you have any good ideas for what you would call the, the butcher shop that you would put at 1815 Driscoll Street, let us know. Thanks for listening to Two Jane Days. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday at 6 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review so that way others can notice us too. Catch us on Facebook at Two Jane Does where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts.